This edition of the Northern Miner Podcast is sponsored by Mine Expo International, the world's largest and most influential mining equipment trade show. Explore every level and sector of mining September 28th to 30th at the Las Vegas Convention Center. Visit MineExpo.com for more details. Don't miss this decade's biggest opportunity. Welcome to episode number 173, Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I'm your online editor. I'm your host. And can you believe it? PDAC is right around the corner. It starts on March 1st, so it's early this year. And uh, yeah, uh, there's a lot of people coming. So let's see what happens over there. Uh, We have a panel that is going to be put on by our uh, Northern Miner Group publisher, Anthony Vaccaro, who is just everywhere in the mining community. So he will be hosting a talk financing the mineral industry, investment banker perspectives. That is on March 2nd, which is the Monday. That is room 713. And it takes place at 11 o'clock and it goes till 1215. And in that panel... Financing the Mineral Industry. Uh, you'll have Anthony Vaccaro as moderator. You will have Elan Bahar, who is Managing Director and Co-Head of Global Metals and Mining Group at BMO Capital Markets. You're going to have Michael Farala, who is from TD Securities, Head of Global Mining. Chris Gratius, who is in Global Investment Banking for CIBC Capital Markets. And finally, you will have Ryan Latinovich, Managing Director and Global Head of Mining and Metals and Global Investment Banking at RBC Capital Markets. So there's going to be a lot to catch at PDAC this year. Uh, so we're excited for that. Uh, the Young Mining Professionals have an event. Let's just check their Twitter here. I've been following the PDAC Twitter. It's pretty active. There's a lot going on. So if you are attending or you're thinking about it, you may want to check the PDAC Twitter feed. I'm just going to check the YMP Toronto because they usually have a lot going on here. There we go. Uh, Tickets now on sale for the 2020 YMP Awards. Kick off the PDAC at the Shangri-La Toronto on February 29th. The Shangri-La is a beautiful hotel. It's a great opportunity to meet some young mining professionals, and they're a very impressive organization. The Northern Miner works with them. I think they have one in Sudbury. They have one in London, England. I think they might have one in Australia. I could be wrong about that one. But it's a pretty impressive organization. They get great speakers, like the top speakers uh, that you'd want in the mining industry, major CEOs. So they have tickets on sale. Yeah, there's YMP Montreal. Yeah. With the CEO of Rio Tinto Energy and Minerals, will be joining YMP for a chat. Bold Batar. So how great is that? Just RSVP. So yeah, so free. You can follow them at YMP Toronto. Yeah, so PDAC is here. Uh, This episode, we are going to look at the news as usual. Pretty interesting developments with kind of these big corporations securing stakes in mines or at least supply. I think this always sort of happened, but we're sort of seeing a couple of stories just sort of collected and it just sort of went, is this the beginning of a trend? So we're going to look at that. 
Also, we have some coronavirus stuff. How is that going to impact the metals markets? There's some pretty interesting opinions. Also, Chile's copper output is declining, which is interesting considering they have some of the biggest, if not the biggest reserves in the world and more. And as our feature content today, we are going to take a look at the fourth and final presentation from the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And this is fascinating as well. Uh, this is Eib Schirkus. Eib is short for Eberhard, born in Germany. And he's the former COO and president of Igneco Eagle. And he was president from 2005 to 2012. I'm tempted to call this episode a brief history of Igneco Eagle because you really learn a lot about the company. And Igneco is a pretty incredible story from a mining perspective and also from a Canadian perspective. I grew out of Quebec and he really tips his hat to Quebec. There's a little bit of French in here, so English-only speakers to practice your French. And uh, the important thing about that is really the tip of the hat that he gives to Quebec. He calls it one of the best places for resource development on the globe. And I don't think we should just take that as a throwaway line. I think we should really heed that and think about that as we think of Quebec. Yeah, so there's a, a lot of good things in there. In, in a sense, what we have here in this speech and also in the video presentation, we sort of get inside the mind of an executive and like a high-end executive, one who was former president and now he's looking back on his life and everyone that helped him along the way. He, he references how it's a tough business. Minds are made, not found. It harkens to the entrepreneurial side of mining. He's called a visionary and a mentor. Uh, he made everyone feel acknowledged and important at the company sign of a leader, I think we could say, and he really had an emphasis on safety. It's a great story of a family that moved from Germany to Canada. His dad was a miner, and that's where he learned to love mining, and there he worked his way all the way to the top of the industry. And it's also the story of a company, Agnico Eagle, how it went from a single mine company to a company with you know, multiple mines, a global gold producer that today is really respected. I mean, Igneco Eagle is it's a top tier company and that's no small accomplishment. That is coming up. So a lot of information on mine building and just leadership management, all the very interesting stuff that you'd expect to hear at the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And uh, yeah, just, just, you know, our Twitter, there's lots going on on Twitter. People are excited about this uranium story, you know. Uh, there's a lot of excitement on Twitter about it. If you want to see our special, just go down to the bottom of the homepage and we have a few stories there on uranium. And uh, yeah, check that out. Uh, just look at a special focus, Uranium 2020, and you'll see all sorts of good stuff there. And you can join the conversation. Uh, people are tweeting our stories, tweeting the newspaper, everything. So we totally appreciate that. And I am a generous retweeter. So Tweet to your heart's content. Speaking of Twitter, you can find us online at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at northernminer. You can find us on Instagram at the northernminer. And you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, where we host these podcasts, and LinkedIn. And also you can find us wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. And turning to the website, we have... A big headline, Glencore signs five-year cobalt deal with Samsung. And you don't see Samsung very often on the Northern Miner website. 
Miner and commodities trader Glencore has signed a five-year deal to supply South Korean battery manufacturer Samsung SDI with up to 21,000 tons of cobalt amid an expected boom in demand for the metal. So Samsung's battery manufacturing unit, Samsung SDI, is securing cobalt supplies. The agreement will see the Swiss firm, Glencore, send the equivalent of 45% of its 2019 cobalt production, or about 63% of its expected total output for 2020 to Samsung. So they are sending a large amount of their cobalt output to Samsung. Glencore produced 46,300 tons of cobalt last year, up 10% from 2018, but expects to generate only 29,000 tons this year after shutting down its Mutanda mine, the world's largest cobalt operation, last year in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The supply going to the battery maker will come mainly from the company's Kentanga mine, which is also in the DRC. We have a quote from Nico Perskevas, Glencore's head of copper and cobalt marketing, who says the deal demonstrates a further continuation of Glencore's cobalt hydroxide marketing strategy to secure long-term supply agreements with key players in the lithium-ion battery supply chain. The Bar Switzerland-based firm signed a number of multi-year deals to supply cobalt last year. In April, it committed to provide German luxury vehicle maker BMW with cobalt from its Murin mine in Australia. Glencore also signed three other large long-term deals in 2019 with Korean battery manufacturer SK Innovation for 30,000 tons, enough to make 2 million electric vehicles with today's cathode technology, Belgian chemicals giant Umicor, and China's GEM, a battery recycler. And finally here, in January, Bloomberg reported that Tesla was in talks to buy cobalt from Glencore for its third gigafactory, recently opened in Shanghai. And let's not forget, cobalt has fallen quite dramatically. We'll take a closer look at that in our metal prices section, but cobalt is sort of been skidding along the bottom for a few months now, and it's I think there's a sense that there is an oversupply, and maybe Samsung sees a great opportunity to secure some supply at a great price. And I'm just going to read a couple of more lines here. Along with the closure of Mutanda, the news has created a sense that the cobalt market will fall further into balance in 2020, helped by increasing demand from the battery and electric vehicle sectors. Some cobalt sourced in Congo, which accounts for 60% of global supply, has come under scrutiny for its potential use of children in mining. And you might remember this from last year. Apple was getting a lot of criticism for this. Tesla, Google, and Apple were among the big names sued by a human rights group in December about their alleged involvement in abusive mining practices in Congo. According to Amnesty International, children as young as seven have been found scavenging for rocks containing cobalt in the DRC. The group also claims to have evidence that the cobalt those miners dig have been entering the supply chains of some of the world's biggest brands. ESG, environmental social governance, reappears. It's becoming almost a feature I want to say of every story, but it's starting to feel that way. And so even the London's Metals Exchange, this is how serious this is and how seriously people are taking this. These and other allegations have put pressures on companies and traders. The London Metal Exchange, LME, the world's biggest market for industrial metals, 
as plans to ban metal tainted by human rights abuses. The initiative to ensure responsible sourcing originally had 2022 as the deadline, but LME will now wait until 2025. And the European Union in May 2017 passed a regulation to stop mine workers being abused and conflict minerals being exported to the European Union. The requirement to ensure mineral imports are responsibly sourced will become effective on January 1st, 2021. Samsung signs five-year cobalt deal with Glencore. And we have another technology company. We have Mitsubishi, and this is also by Cecilia Jamazmi. Mitsubishi acquires 30% of Manto Verde copper mine. Japanese powerhouse Mitsubishi Metals Corporation has acquired a 30% stake in Manto's Copper's Monteverdi Mine and associated projects in Chile for $263 million. MMC has been seeking to participate in high-quality copper projects to secure concentrate for its copper smelters as demand for the industrial metal is expected to soar in the coming years because of its use in electric vehicles and renewable technologies. You know... Coming as these stories are during the coronavirus and copper took a pretty big hit, like these industrial metals took a bit of a hit and it looks like these technology companies, they've been around, they see what happens with these prices, they see the cyclical nature of these prices. Rather than this necessarily being a trend, maybe this is more just what these guys see as an opportunity. A little bit about the mine, the Manto Verde open pit mine in the arid Atacama Desert holds an estimated 2.1 million tons of copper reserves. Mantos Copper has unveiled plans to build a concentrator and expand facilities, something that may now come faster than expected with Mitsubishi's involvement. At the end of the article here, it just says, in the past four years, Japanese trading companies have been grabbing assets and increasing stakes on a few of them. In 2018, Mitsui and company increased its interest in Chile's Kolawazi copper mine to 11%. A few weeks later, Mitsubishi upped its interest in Anglo-Americans' Kualaveco copper project in Peru by 21.9% for $600 million, taking its hold to 40%. Sumitomo followed suit, buying a 30% interest in tech resources' Cabrada Blanca Phase Two copper project in northern Chile for $1.2 billion. Chile is the world's largest copper producer, meaning more than 30% of global demand. The metal accounts for up to 15% of the country's gross domestic product. So that is happening. And on the security front, I wanted to touch on this Banro story. Let's look at the headline here. Banro to sell Namoya Mine and DRC on security concerns. It's also by Cecilia Jamazmi. Banro will put its Namoya gold mine in the DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, up for sale at a significant discount after repeated attacks from armed rebels forced it to halt op- operations once again in September. The Toronto-based miner, present in eastern DRC since the 1990s, said the decision to offload Namoya was based on the lack of government support to keep its staff and assets safe. Banro had a challenging run that nearly ended in bankruptcy three years ago. The government had confiscated its licenses during a civil war that killed 5 million people, returning them in 2002 as the conflict drew to a close. In the following year, the company built its Twangiza and Namoya mines. The latter had been since then the target of multiple attacks, including the kidnapping of employees, 
which led the cash-strapped company to halt operations in 2017. A Canadian court approved a rescue plan in early 2018, enabling the company's main creditors, uh, Chinese state-controlled buy-in international investments and Connecticut-based Gramercy Funds Management to become its senior shareholders. The move allowed Banro to resume operations. Fresh attacks, however, including the kidnapping of four employees in July, disrupted mining activities once again. And just to wrap up here, the company ended up signing an agreement with the leader of the Mai Mai Militia, allowing artisanal local miners to temporarily extract gold from Nomoya's site in exchange for the release of the abducted workers, which were held for several weeks before being released, La Libre Afrique reported. And finally, Banro is now seeking to exit the country. Last month, it sold its Twangiza mine to minority shareholder Buy-in International Investments of China, for just $1. As the assets' liabilities exceeded projected revenue, Chairman Brett Richards told Reuters on Friday, he's hoping to do the same thing with Nemoya. We have a quote, I'm actively trying to sell the business for very, very low value to see if somebody else can come in and accept the unstable environment that has been created by the government. Reuters quoted Richards as saying, wow, run out of the country. Uh, by security concerns. I mean, they're giving it away. Just take it. We're out of here. So, yeah. So that's Banro in the DRC. And now on to Corona. Coronavirus to reduce demand for commodities, economists say. And we have this great story by Trish Saywell. And she wraps up a whole bunch of economists' view on the coronavirus outbreaks and how it's going to potentially affect commodities and trade and supply chains and global economic growth. In the article, it says UBS economists expect the current coronavirus outbreak will reduce global growth this year by two and a half percentage points. The Wall Street Journal reported on February 5th, the health crisis is expected to take a dramatic toll on China's economy. Moody's Investor Services estimates Chinese GDP will grow at 5.8% this year, while Pierre Vaillancourt a mining analyst at Haywood Securities says the figure could fall to as low as 5.5%. BMO Capital Markets has cut its GDP growth estimate for China to 4.5% in the first quarter of 2020 and to 5.5% for the full year. I have to say, when I read this, I thought, you know, considering the importance of the cities that are being quarantined and the state of the situation, the fact that there's not even a recession to me is a pretty amazing thing. I guess it's a huge country, though. Uh, China consumes more than 50% of the world's base metals, is a major importer of iron ore, and produces about 53% of the world's steel. So they're both a huge consumer. They consume, uh, you know, just to look, let's look back up a second here. China consumes more than 50% of the world's base metals. One country consumes more than 50% of the world's base metals. And they're a major importer of iron ore, and they're also a producer. They produce about 53% of the world's steel. And we have a quote from Moody's report, quote, reduced manufacturing activity and lower construction and infrastructure investment will hurt demand across the base metals and iron ore complex and potentially change the dynamics where deficit positions exist in 2019. And it lists copper, zinc, and nickel to either bring metals into a surplus position or create an even greater surplus than forecast for 2020 to the further detriment of prices. 
With the coronavirus outbreak, it looks like they're saying that less metal will be consumed and imported, which could lead to surpluses. Companies with a material percentage of their revenue derived from sales into China will be held by both price and unit sales declines. And there's a comparison with SARS. BMO says it's a whole different world now. In 2003, China was about 20% of base metals demand and about 25% of steel. Quote, now overall markets are 50 to 100% larger than at that point, with China about 50% of demand. The impact on commodity markets is naturally amplified this time around. You know, it's interesting how coronavirus meeting a metals commodity story, you know, just it illustrates how huge China is and its growth. Like it's, there's, you know, again, I talk about this every so often, the unique perspective of the northern miner with this financial and geological outlook. I mean, with all this other stuff, what does it say? Just how enormous China has become in terms of its economy. So yeah, so you can read the rest of this on the northernminer.com. It goes into detail. It's fascinating and it's tragic as well. Hopefully they can get that under control. As well, we have one final story before we hit metal prices. And I want to hit this story because I think it's just another surprising story. Chile's copper output falls on declining grades. Copper production in Chile The world's number one producer of the metal dropped by 44,000 tons, or almost 0.8% last year compared to 2018, amid a perfect storm of falling ore grades at the largest deposits, water scarcity, and operational issues. Now, Tom Azapardi had a story on copper in Chile and how Cadelco was underinvested in by the government. It's owned by the government and uh, it was underinvested in in Tom Azapardi's article. So here's another take on it. The country's copper commission, Cochilco, said Cadelco, the state-owned giant, was the miner most affected by aging mines as its production declined by 5.6% in 2019 to about 100,000 tons. The impact of such a fall at a national level was offset by results at other mines such as Barracks Saldivar, London Mining's Candelaria, and Antofagasta's Sentinella. In 2019, the world's largest copper producer turned out 1.7 million tons of copper, the lowest level since 2008 when it generated over 1.55 million tons. At the time, however, the giant Ministro Halles mine, which contributed between 180,000 and 200,000 tons of copper per year, had not yet begun operations. Why is the copper output going down? Is it underinvestment? Is it declining grade and where there's just not as much copper as there was before? Is it water scarcity, operational issues? Is it all of the above? So something's going on in Chile. This is our second highlight story of the last few months about how copper in Chile has a little bit of a yellow flashing light. Okay. In 2019, another mine that experienced a sharp drop in production was BHP's Escondida, the world's largest copper mine, which ended 2019 with a production of 1.1 million tons, or 4.4% less than in 2018. The biggest output increase in turn was registered at Antofagasta's Sentinela mine, which turned out 25.8% more copper than in 2018. And finally, there's a little bit on Cadelco, which hands over all of its profits to the state, is in the midst of an ambitious 10-year, $39 billion U.S. investment drive to open new projects and overhaul older mines. So now we're being told 
that there's $39 billion of investment, which is a ginormous amount of money being put into Codelco. Now, is that now? Was that 10 years ago? It sounds like they're having some sort of issues with Codelco. And the company holds vast copper deposits, accounting for 10% of the world's known proven and probable reserves and about 11% of global annual copper output. It's pretty impressive. With 1.8 million tons of production, the metal accounts for up to 15% of the country's GDP. And with that, let's turn to metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we would like to, first of all, thank our friends at Infomine.com for providing us with these prices. If you'd ever like to find them yourself, just search online, InfoMine and Metal Prices, and you will see this page. And on February 11th, gold is at $1,569.10. That is $1.09 lower than last week. Silver is at $17.72. That is a penny lower. So both gold and silver have hardly changed in the last week, interestingly. Platinum is at $969.42, and that is $9 less than last week, so not a big change there. Palladium is at $2,335.72, and that is about $64 lower than last week. And considering the big moves in palladium, that's also not a huge change. If we look at our industrial metals, on February 7th, copper is at $2.56. That's three cents higher than last week, so it's still pretty low there. There's a bit of a bounce, but it's, yeah, two fifty six, so three cents higher. Aluminum is a penny lower at 77 cents. Lead is at 83 cents, which is two cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $5.79, which is four cents higher than last week. Tin is at $7.40, which is two cents higher than last week. Cobalt is at $15.54, which is 22 cents lower than last week. Finally, zinc is at 98 cents, which is three cents lower. So, not much action, interestingly, in the metals. I, if I was to editorialize, I'd say the commodity markets are very much in wait-and-see mode. With the zinc at the lowest that it's been since we started recording these numbers in the summer, it never went below a dollar on our weekly recording. So now we're at 98 cents on zinc. So those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Eberhard, also known as Eb Shirkus, who receives an induction into the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame. And as you'll learn from the video presentation, Eberhard Shirkus had a remarkable career at Ignico Eagle. He really helped build that company. Uh, he was a he joined as a project manager in 1985. He became the chief operating officer in 1998 and became president and chief operating officer from 2005 until he retired in 2012. I mean, I think we can agree those were formative years for Agnico Eagle. 
As the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame write-up says, during this period, he transformed Agnico Eagle from a regional single mine company into a top-performing global gold producer, expanding the company's Laron mine into a productive mine that has produced 5 million ounces of gold, and he has received many awards and honors for his achievements. He is introduced by José Méteau, who is president and CEO of the Quebec Mining Association. And right at the beginning here, Anthony Vaccaro, who is Northern Miner Group Publisher, introduces the video. So I hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you on the other side. Last, but certainly not least, we recognize Eve Shirkus. Please roll Eve's video. Eve Circus can be called a true company builder, helping take Agnico Eagle Mines from a one-mine Canadian company with 400 employees to an international company with over 5,700 employees. We wouldn't be here today ready to produce almost 2 million ounces of gold next year if it wasn't for Eve's contribution. Eve was not only a crucial part of Agnico Eagle Mines' future, by all means, a visionary, he was also a mentor who believed in taking chance on people. Eve was born in Stuttgart, Germany. His parents emigrated to Canada when Eve was seven months old. We arrived in Val d'Or, Quebec on September 22, 1952. My mom and dad, along with other members of the family, emigrated for a better life. And my dad became a miner working at uh, Lamac Mines and then later on at Manitou Barview Mines uh, working on surface. Uh, it was very common for him to take me to the mine. I was able to wander and watch what he was doing and he would explain things to me. So uh, that's how uh, it all started. Eve's family wanted him to work with his head, not his hands. So university was a must. He graduated from McGill with a degree in geology. During school, one of the first jobs I had was as a line cutter and a geophysical technician. I thought to myself, if I ever want to move on in a mining company, that this is going to be the path. I want to explore mining operations and finding deposits and working with deposits. Eve later went on to qualify as a geological engineer. From 1975 to 1985, he worked his way up in the industry from mine geologist to mine superintendent and project manager. His first permanent job was as a beat geologist at Manitou Barbu Mines near Baldur, Quebec. His path to the top began in 1985 when he was hired as a project manager at the Damagami Mine, which became the Laurent Mine. First thing we did was close it down two months later. This burly miner, Jack Brooks, he walks into my office, and it's a little dingy office, and he says, you can't shut this place down. He says, why not? There's too much coal down there. They decided to start grilling. We're getting core boxes and core boxes of uh, massive sulfide, and we hit the, uh, what looked like to me, the mother load, and since we didn't have the geologist, that was one of the last drill holes I ever logged. Laurent will ultimately end up being the largest gold-bearing massive sulfide deposit in the history of the world. We've mined over 5 million ounces. We'll likely mine 10 plus million ounces there. We speak about uh, 30, uh, 31, 32 years later. 
and this is a world-class uh, deposit. Laurent was just the beginning. Goldex was the next project in which Eve was involved, turning a low-grade mine into a moneymaker. The next step was to look for international opportunities. They started in Mexico. We were able to get with Pinos Altos, got involved in the heat leach into our first foreign jurisdiction. Next, they set their sights on Finland. We always went out as a team. That sort of trust comes from having worked together now for over 20 years. There's no, you know, no nonsense. So we said, let's, it's time to do that. Yeah, let's go. And that became Kitala, and now that's Europe's largest gold producer. As the company grew, Eve transitioned from Vice President of Operations to President and Chief Operating Officer. Under his watch, the company expanded to Nunavut in challenging Arctic conditions, relying on the expertise they had amassed in Valdor, Quebec. A metal bank from acquisition to pouring its first ounce of gold, it was an incredible accomplishment in two and a half years for something that was, uh, well, let's give it a try. There's that famous saying in mining that mines are made, they're not found. And Eve is an effective leader at making that happen. We're a company that's been very successful over six decades. We're grinders, and Eve was one of the best grinders. Eve retired in 2012 and went on to board work. His legacy isn't just as a company builder, but he's also recognized for building a strong company culture. Eve is known for making everyone feel acknowledged and important. There was no distinguishing between the management teams and the employees working on the site. Everybody uh, dressed the same, wore the same helmets, everybody was equal, and all contributed to the success of the, of the mines. He mentored a lot of people. Many of us are presently executive in different mining companies. So this man, he really helped to develop the mining industry, the mining executive. Looking back, Eve says he's very proud of where it all began, at La Ronde. La Ronde was the mine that basically put Agnico on the map, and to be there when the core came out of the ground, to, to see it grow to what it is today in the company, uh, uh, that's pretty, uh, pretty tough to beat. Here to present the award to Eve is Jose Meto, President and CEO of the Quebec Mining Association. Jose, please take the podium. Bonsoir tout le monde. Je suis très heureuse d'être ici ce soir pour honorer la très belle carrière de Monsieur Eve Shirkus. As seen in the video, it is with Eve's leadership that Agnico Eagle transformed from a regional single mine company into a top performing global gold producer. Many of our members have had a good fortune to work alongside Mr. Shirkus. The people we have spoken to were all unanimous in their recognition of his outstanding qualities. They all appreciated his passion for mining, his leadership, and above all, his dynamic approach and deep deep respect for his workers. 
His great strength was to make everyone he came into contact with feel that they were important to the mine operation. This induction to the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame is a well-deserved recognition of Eve's career. At the Quebec Mining Association, we are happy and very proud that Eve's career, Eve's commitment to the Canadian mining industry is recognized tonight. So it is my honor to present this award to Mr. Eve Shirkus. Now, Eve, it would be your turn to come up to the podium. I don't know how many of you watched the Golden Globes over the last week, but you know I'm sort of feeling a bit of a Ricky Gervais moment here. Uh, I know I'm the last one. I know you're all thinking, hopefully he doesn't speak too long. Uh, we're out of wine and we would like to go back to the bar and renew acquaintances. But as Ricky said, I don't care. So. That particular song, I Won't Back Down, spoke to me on multiple levels. It was selected around the dinner table uh, with my family. I think on a personal level it meant I never understood the word no or it can't be done. It also reflects Agnico Eagle, a company with humble roots in Cobalt and Jutel, a company founded by Paul Penno over 62 years ago. Today, a major producer with multiple mines, still around, never back down. Also, it talks to our mining industry. It's not a walk in the park, as you saw in that video. It's a very tough business. It's easy to lambaste. It's easy to assail. Very few appreciate the effort required to find, develop, finance, build, operate a mine, let alone multiple mines. We have to stand our ground. There is no easy way out. In terms of thanks, First off, I have to congratulate my co-inductees. As they all mentioned, one never works towards or plans to be inducted. It just sort of happens. J'aimerais aussi remercier Monsieur Dan Tolisi, son prédécesseur à l'Association. Dan introduced me to the players in the Quebec mining industry. And I think our highlight was the 1995 referendum. And we were miners first, lobbyists second. I'd also like to thank, you know, the Abitibi region, Val d'Or, Quebec, my hometown, Rouen-Naranda, both towns with a rich multicultural mining tradition. Probably a large number of people here tonight have had some exposure to the region at some point in time. I'd also like to, you know, thank the province of Quebec, one of the best places for resource development on the globe. Blessed with a wealth of resources, politically stable, consistent regulatory environment, highly skilled workforce, entrepreneurship. One only realizes this once one travels the globe. The list of mining companies who operated mines or got their start is a who's who of the world mining industry. Naranda, Falconbridge, Placer Dome, Lac Minerals, Cambior, I Am Gold, Barrick, my alma mater, Camflow, the Osiscos, IOC, Glencore, Inco, Quebec Cartier, Goldcore, and of course Agnico Eagle. J'aimerais aussi remercier le député d'Abitibi-Est, ministre responsable de la région d'Abitibi-Miskaming et de la région du Nord-Ouest du Québec, Pierre Dufour. 
Minister Dufour recently had a congratulatory resolution passed on my behalf in the Quebec National Assembly. We have both come a long way from the early 90s when we first met in the Village Minier de Beaulamac, a Quebec historical site formerly known as Tech Tex Lamac Mine. Merci, Minister Dufour. The video covered the early days. It's hard to believe that mom and dad, with all our possessions in hand, and including me, struck off into the unknown, hoping for a better life for my sister Bridget, who happens to be here tonight with her husband, Tim. Many years later, after my sister and I were well established in our careers, dad, fighting terminal cancer, confided that they indeed had made the right decision. One of my first mentors was Dr. Brian Meikle of Camflow Mines, a former inductee. I got to appreciate and understand teamwork, interpersonal relationships, and most importantly, understanding an ore body, grade control, stress testing with price sensitivity. And that was also followed by Ed Falgren, the former president of Koshner Mines in Red Lake. The sense of pride, ownership, that the former employee still had with the respect to a mothballed mine site. Although the mine site was dormant, the site was impeccable. That lesson would serve me well. And then I get to the Agnico years. The first senior management person I met at Agnico was Anton Adamsik, the general manager. He referred me to Don Laurent. They both said I had the job after the interview, but would have to convince Paul Penna and his right-hand man, Wenzel Hubachek. The rest is history. Anton, he flew all the way in from Croatia to be here tonight. Thanks, Anton. Stand up. We can all see you. <laughs> and, that, and that brings me to Paul Penna, another Hall of Famer, founder of Agnico. What can be said that has already not been said about Paul? Wherever you are tonight, Paul, I hope we did you proud. It was his decentralized management style and his quips that set the tone for the future. The mine shouldn't be run by people. The mine should be run by people on the mine site. If they don't know what they're doing, they shouldn't be there. I only care about one number, the one at the bottom right-hand corner. Gold does not rot. If we have it, it's only a matter of time. Laurent and Goldex took 25 years and 35 years respectively. He also said, if you give me the dynamite, I'll find the money. <laughs> in today's nomenclature, we ended up being disruptors in the 1980s. We were upstarts surrounded by Placerdome, Lac Minerals, Cambior, Inco, Barrick, and Aranda. Our team, what can I say about them? First person I met, Marcel Bordelot, chief accountant. Upon arrival in a yellow Volkswagen, he just said, who the hell is this? But Marcel counted the money over the many years. What little we had of it. Marcel, take a bow. Come on. <laughs> Paul Henri, our first hire, chief engineer, designed the mine layout that is still in production today, 32 years later. Set the tone for the future. Dan Racine, CEO of Yamana, Christian Provence, Michel Leclerc, Carol Plummer, Daniel Paré, Fred Langevin, and many more followed in his giant footsteps. Paul Henri, take a bow. This is an old tradition that I used to do at the mine. <laughs> Claude Levier, manager of HR, devised the platform that provided a security blanket for our employees and their families, resulting in one of the lowest turnover rates and safety performances in the industry. Claude, take a bow. 
Alain Blackburn, chief geologist, he had a nose for gold, but was also a hardcore production geologist. All that followed in his footsteps, Mark Legault, Guy Gosselin, Jean Duquette, the list is too long. Frontline production, whether they went on to reserve estimation, exploration, operations, property evaluation, all had frontline experience. Alain, where are you? Take your bow. Jean Robitaille, he was on the video, mill superintendent. Laurent was a polymetallic ore, difficult to treat. His high standards cracked the code. His steam, Paul Cousin, Nancy Gay, Julie Belanger, Yvon Sylvester, seconded by the construction team, oversaw the metallurgical flow sheet and construction over every single Agnico plant built. And then we had Raël Rassico, master mechanic, and Félix Saint-Amand. Before I wander on, Jean, you, we've seen you in the video, so take a bow anyways. But we had Rayal and we also had Felix Saint-Amand, chief electrician. Hardcore guys who could fix anything at any time of day, week, especially helpful when money was tight, and supervised the ongoing expansion at construction at Goldex, Lapa, and La Ronde. And then we have Louise Grandin. I call her Mother Earth, setting the benchmark for environmental stewardship. Who develops bacterial strains that can destruct cyanide, ammonia, and neutralize toxicity in mine effluent? She did. She also spearheaded the effort resulting in my induction tonight. Thank you so much, Louise. Take a bow. <laughs> and this brings me to a gentleman who needs no introduction, Sean Boyd. What can we say about a working relationship that lasted for 27 years and lasts today? We were behind Paul, beside Paul, and then on our own, heading deeper at La Ronde and our first foray outside of our comfort zone in northwestern Quebec into parts unknown. It was our reliance on one increasingly deeper asset and the increasing risk profile that started the search for an open pitable, simpler deposit. We were at a live webcast once at the Hilton and after a particular bad quarter at La Ronde. I mentioned to a shareholder that we were learning to adjust to deep mining condition. And that particular irate shareholder replied, we pay you to deliver, not to learn. And I will always remember that. As we were going through this process, Sean had to keep investors on side, interested in the story, poor markets, major M&A deals, while we stuck to our boring knitting and strategy. It would only be a matter of time. Thank God we had the support of Jim Nasso, our chairman, to keep the board on site as well. We were looking for early stage projects with upside potential. Sounds very easy, but hard to do. We were late to the party in Nevada, just in time in Mexico, early in Finland, and at the beginning in Nunavut. The floodgates opened. We expanded La Ronde, built Goldex, Lapa, Pinos Altos, Kitala, Meadowbank from 2004 to 2010. We grew from 600 employees to over 6,000. In retrospect, sheer madness, fully supported by Sean and Jim. Quantum leap in the company. Looking back, the right move. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Jim. It was uh, during this period that we met Tim Haldane, who led the charge in Chihuahua. Igmar Haga, John Todd, Peter Tapatai in Nunavut. Igmar, Tim, Peter, take your bow. We had met them during our early stage evaluations and relationships developed. They were instrumental in helping us understand their local constituency, showed me the local color, 
and everyone knows I love local color. Characters, decision makers, ice bars in Finland, taco joints in Chihuahua, and people's home. Thank you for all of your support and buying into the story. If I had four takeaways or memories etched in my brain from each location, it would be the following. I think starting with Mexico, Mark Legault and I were there. We were an SUV and we were surrounded by five individuals pointing rifles at us. Fortunately, they were looking for drug dealers and our host convinced them that we were representatives of a Canadian mining company. We were looking for real gold, not Panama gold. There is something to be said about political stability. This was offset by our employees walking through Kawasori, proudly wearing Agnico Pinos Altos colors, hauling marijuana one year, operating a million dollar jumbo two years later. At Kitala, the mayor gave a presentation to our Inuit guests on the impact of mining. It had only been seven years. She mentioned that the population had started to grow again. Our young were staying and even coming back after the construction of the Kitala mine. Listening in on a conversation between a Sami Laplander and a Baker Lake Inuit, they compared notes on how they butchered a reindeer versus a caribou, priceless. At Meadowbank, the first mine built on Inuit-owned lands. When we opened the first bridge on the road to Meadowbank, the elders dressed in their attire led their way across the bridge and into the future. The symbolism of that moment was incredible. No bureaucracy could ever stop that. Also, the first gold pour at Meadowbank on the eve before Sid scored the gold medal winning goal at the Vancouver 2010 Olympics, another MasterCard moment. And finally, back in the Abitibi where it all started, October 2011. We had just announced that we were ceasing production at Goldex immediately due to safety concerns with the crown pillar. We needed time to figure out the issues and see whether they were resolvable. We kept our employees relocated them, cut project. I walked into a joint management employee collaboration committee meeting in existence for over 25 years. It met on an annual basis to review salaries, benefits, problems, issues, etc. I informed them of our decision based on safety, relocate jobs, contractor re reductions. They in return asked if the employees could caucus alone which they did. Upon reconvening, they came back and said, you've done enough, discussions are over, we don't want anything, we have work to do. Josh Dallaire was a member of that committee, he's here tonight, take a bow, Josh. As a result, Goldex came back as well after facing the wrath of our shareholders and a class action suit. I reserved the biggest thanks for last for my family, three children, Carrie, Adam, and Andrew, all born in mining community. They have all grown up to do well and make us proud. Mining is tough, but it's also tough on families. Long hours, travel, and often a very grouchy dad. Memories of heading to the Laurent mine site, harvesting our Christmas trees with a thermos of hot chocolate, and our family retriever, Chelsea. They have seen and experienced it all. The good, the bad, the tears, the sadness, the laughter. As a result, we are closer and tighter than ever before. Love them dearly. Love the three grandkids, Mia, Audrey, and Evan so much, and thank them so much for their understanding and patience. Take a bow, kids. Come on. You're right here. <laughs> and that, I've saved the best for last, my wife, Linda. 
We were high school sweethearts, together for 52 years. She's my best friend, soulmate, and the glue that held it all together. She was there when I got on the midnight bus and headed off to university in Montreal. Teenagers. We didn't know how that would work up. We grew up together, got married, had a family, went wherever this crazy industry took us. She kept the home fires burning. She also didn't know the meaning of the word no. Open to any adventure, at any time. She came underground with me and climbed raised ladders. She was there when I had my heart attack shortly after retiring after my 60th birthday. We sat in a dim room, me wired for sound. And you don't know what comes to your mind first. And one of the first things I said, we said, well, I guess we're going to miss John Robitaille's 50th birthday party tomorrow. <laughs> and we did, we missed it. We also asked ourselves, what's next? Is that all there is? Was it worth it? That was eight years ago. The moral of this story is well known. What doesn't kill you makes you strong. She's my number one groupie whenever our little rock band, the Retros, play. She is here tonight. It was more than worth it. I wouldn't be here tonight with all of your understanding, love, hard work, and spirit. And the best is, we're not done yet. So the best is yet to come. So take a bow, Lynn. It's <laughs> So I've come to the end, so thank you, merci, gracias, kitos, matna, and to all a good night. And to all a good night. Thank you for once again listening to the Northern Miner podcast. We would like to ask you to leave us a review or to share it with your friends if you like the show. Thank you for your ongoing support. We'd also like to thank Mine Expo again for sponsoring this episode. Visit them at mineexpo.com. And until next week, take care.